Cancelled Movie Report presents Guillermo del Toro's At the Mountains of Madness Based on the works of H.P. Lovecraft Written by Guillermo del Toro and Matthew Robbins Adapted by Michael Campbell. Tasmania, October 1939. We see a derelict whaling ship named the Arkham float aimlessly off the harbour. There's no sign of crew on board. Some patrolmen go out and board the ship to investigate. The ship is in complete disarray. A faded American flag is in tatters. There's seawater everywhere, waist deep. And mummified dogs float in the water. Some 35mm film cans are stacked up in a corner, and they come across a storeroom. Sir, it's locked from the inside, sir. They pry open the door to find a crazed old man, disgusting looking, inside the locked room. But he doesn't speak. He's chin deep in water. And as the patrolmen slowly enter, they notice the rotted remains of another human being, almost glued on the wall and they approach the crazed man. When suddenly he snaps, he grabs an axe and starts swinging and screaming. Bang! The patrolman shoots the man and he collapses. So we cut to Hobart docks with people stocking up another ship. This is the HMS Moonstone. And we're introduced to Alan Starkweather. He's the captain of this new ship and he's about to set off on an expedition to Antarctica. This is a British uh, army general. And he and his warrant officer, they climb into a Bentley heading somewhere. We learn that the Arkham, the ship that just came, uh, you know, wafting into the... That went missing almost 10 years ago. Along with its sister ship, the Miskatonic. Starkweather is handed the documents and films that were recovered from the ship and told, The Arkham has returned, and it has one survivor. So we cut to the hospital with the madman from the opening scene. And Starkweather comes to visit him. Uh, we discover the autopsy of the rotted corpse that he was discovered with. It died of a gunshot wound. And Starkweather tries to communicate. Speak in the Dutch. The crazed man says nothing. So giving up, Starkweather mentions to his warrant officer that I'm hardly in a position to get involved with this. With Hitler in Poland, my timetable is even more urgent. I must reach Antarctica by... Must not go. He suddenly, he grabs Starkweather's arm. I say, sir, let go now. You must not sail to Antarctica. He asks them, what, what year is this? And they say, why, it's 1939. The man is, is shocked. It doesn't make any sense to him. See, he tells them his name is William Dyer. And he was a professor aboard the Miskatonic University Expedition. But he says that when he left on the expedition... That was back in September of 1930. And he starts telling his tale. We now cut to 1930, Miskatonic University at a garden party. We see all the professors before their big expedition. And celebration, and there's reporters everywhere. And champagnes flow. And we meet the expedition's lead professor, Professor Lake. And he's holding court with a bunch of reporters. We also see William Dyer, 
but he is far from crazy here. He is young and healthy and good looking. See, Dyer, he's pleading with his pregnant wife, Anne, because Anne doesn't want him to go on the expedition. She begs with him to leave with her and enjoy their life, see the birth of their child, which he'll definitely miss if he goes. And Dyer, he reluctantly, he agrees. He says, you know what? I'm going to quit the expedition, but I just need to tell Professor Lake. He goes over and he, he, in the garden party, he approaches uh, Professor Lake and his oldest friend, a guy by the name of Danforth, his best friend. And he's going to tell them that, unfortunately, he needs to leave the expedition. I should have left then and there. Anne knew it. She knew me better than myself. Unfortunately, so did Lake. Always travel light, gentlemen. A couple of ships, a few tons of food, four airplanes, and something warm for the winter. (laughs) Young Dyer, just in time. Join us. Professor Lake, there's something we need to talk about my participation. Bill, Bill, I am not blind. I know what you're going through. I, too, was young once. Do exactly as you must. I'm very sorry, sir. Oh, no, no, no. Please. (laughs) No apologies. But before you leave, a crate arrived this morning. It'll only take a minute. A crate? From, from whom? What's in it? Something you definitely must see. Lake leads Danforth and Dyer down a corridor, lined with tall glass cabinets containing bones and pickled specimens. Did I ever tell you that they named this wing after my grandfather? Yes, sir, I believe you did. And that the library was also... Named after your father. You've mentioned that too, sir, twice. <laughs> Forgive me. I tend to dwell on it, but it's not easy, you see, having these illustrious dead men weighing on your shoulders. Not easy at all. At your age, time has no meaning. It's of no consequence. But I'm 52. For the longest time, I had the certainty that mine has been a life lived in vain. Sir, you have achieved great- I said, I had. As Lake opens the door, Dyer's jaw sags in astonishment. Lake's office is wall-to-wall books and glass cases. In the center stands something, unseen by the camera. The creature was heavily decomposed when fossilization began, but the striations on both flanks clearly suggest the existence of other appendages, you see? Sir, I've, I've never seen anything like it. As Dyer approaches, the display comes into view. A massive, if fragmentary, fossil of a monstrous creature. Want to venture a date? I, I, there are faint traces of a layered stromatolite that would suggest... Precambrian. Late Archean. Impossible. Though nothing remotely as complex as this creature existed on Earth. It must be a fake. Oh, it's real. That much I'm sure of. (laughs) You may recall the Randolph expedition. Yes, sir. Six months ago, uncharted stretch of land west of Mount Lister. Precisely. Not much came of it, as I recall. That's what was said, wasn't it? In fact, Professor Randolph was intimidated by this find. I am not. If 
we can dig up further evidence to sustain its provenance. We'll make history, Bill. Are you interested in that, Dyer? Making history? Uh, now, an important detail is during this scene, at one point it does cut outside to uh, Dyer's wife, Anne. She's waiting for him, and she leaves. We now cut to a bit of a montage. Remember, that was September 1930. We now cut to October 1930 in the Arctic Circle. And the Arkham and her sister ship, the Miskatonic, they sail together. And everyone is getting mail. It's a big mail call. But Dyer gets nothing. We meet several other of the crew members, including two cameras. That's where the 35mm film came from. And they're recording the expedition. And via some old film footage, we're introduced to dog handlers on the ship as well. So this included uh, a character called Larson, who's the chief dog handler. Um, so we have, a, we have a bunch of people on the, on the team here. We have the research team and some of the boat crew. So obviously we have Dyer. That's, that's Tom Cruise. We also have Professor Lake in charge of the expedition, and of course, his best mate, Dan Forth. Dyer's best mate. Uh, we also have uh, another professor called Atwood. And Atwood, he's, a, he's the religious type. Uh, so we have two characters called Pip and Gendry. Uh, they're the two filmmakers. And we have other professors, Daniels, Sumner, Higgins, Gordon. There's a bunch of other scientists. Uh, and then, of course, we have some of the boat crew. Most importantly is Captain Douglas. He's the captain of the boat. Uh, we have uh, Larson, the dog handler. And his other dog handler, a guy called Gunnison. And then we have McTeague. He is the comms officer. On board the boat, uh, there are also four aeroplanes, two on each boat, like mini, like Cessna-style aeroplanes. Uh, there's eight drills. There's 55 sled dogs. And there's thousands of pounds of food. We now cut in this montage to November 1930. They're at the same location in the Arctic Circle. Lots of equipment. And they're finding fossils of ancient marine life deep in the water. And they continue, but it's nothing like the original fossil that Lake showed Dyer. And Lake is obsessed with finding something like it. We now cut to New Year's Eve, 1931. The ships both sail through a heavy fog. Lake stands on the main deck, looking at over the water and the clouds on the horizon, when he's suddenly joined by Captain Douglas. We'll be in that fog bank all night and all day tomorrow. But it's utterly fantastic. It looks like a city, doesn't it? A mirage at sea, just like the desert. A glacier becomes a boat. A land blink appears where there is none. Can't trust your eyes this far south. The Miskatonic flashes its light. Sending a signal to the Arkham. Uh, Miskatonic has received a message from Boston. We're having trouble with our radio. Magnetic field, perhaps. Perhaps. Sir? This just came in. Professor Dyer, his wife and baby, died in childbirth, and the both of them. How uh, deliver the news? No, 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 no. Say, uh, say nothing to him. Not, not now. I, uh, I know him well, Captain. I'll take care of him at the right time. Trust me. 
as this is happening, the original fossil they brought on board starts vibrating. And it's described in the script, starts vibrating like a homing beacon. Something is disturbing it. So we now cut to Dyer, and he's having a dream about his wife. But it slowly morphs into a nightmare. He sees her standing alone on a frozen tundra, when suddenly she is gone. And Dyer sees, instead, a lone, dark figure walking towards him. The Dark Man. This is what it's called in the script. His eyes snap open and he gets out of bed. And we see now that he is thin, pale, and has long nails. And he stumbles in a daze through the ship. And we see other crewmates, and they're all sleeping or passed out. And the food is old and rotted. Dyer goes up to the deck and no one is there. The horizon is still covered in a thick fog. And he ventures down into the engine room. All the engines are running at full speed, but no one is there manning them. This is not good. Crack! The Arkham smashes through a heavy layer of ice. The ship is bearing down on the ground. So now we get a bit of an action sequence. Uh, so yeah, the water starts rushing in as it's bearing on the ground. It's washing some of the crew away. Cargo is toppling from one side to the other. The dog handler Larson, he's down below deck and he's saving some of his dogs. A derrick, which is the big crane type of thing. That swings and it hits Dyer. He's bleeding and almost falls overboard before Danforth catches him and pulls him back on board. Frost starts encompassing the ship while instruments are going crazy. Compasses spinning madly. The ship slowly stops rocking and the fog clears. One of the men asks, Where the hell are we? Then the script says, At the Mountains of Madness. This is the description of the Mountains of Madness from the script. A land unseen by human eyes, dreamlike mountains, jagged peaks and valleys, dreamlike, low slanting sunbeams, volcanoes smoking all under a purplish sky. And then this is how Dyer describes it. Of course, he's, um, he's doing a monologue as he's explaining his story. So this is his monologue of how he describes it. The mountains before us surpassed anything in imagination. At 36,000 feet, they put Everest out of the running. But at the very top, through the clouds, we could make out bizarre structures. Unnatural, almost symmetrical. What on earth could have built them? What could have lived in such a cold, dead place? The answer became evident soon enough. Nothing human. Nothing human at all. So the cameras, they're, they're filming again, as everyone is in awe. And we, we also cut back to Starkweather. He's watching this at the hospital. He's watching the film. Well, the ship has run aground, and they're completely iced in. And the, the, the crew, they chip away at the ice, but it seems to grow back just as quickly as they can crack it. We learn that the sister ship, the Miskatonic, that's missing, and no one knows where it is. We cut to the onboard lab in the ship. And several professors are trying to make one of the drills work, because of course the drills are frozen over as well. And Dyer enters and he's concerned. And he notes that all the clocks on the ship have stopped. And they all pull out their watches too. They've all stopped as well. Everyone confirms that the date reads January 28th, 6.14am. Which, according to their calendars, is still weeks away. The drill manages to slowly grind to life, but Dyer is still worried. 
he's not sure. They seem to kind of, you know, pawn it off, but die. he's not so sure. Why? What's going on? We're now with McTeague, the comms officer. And he sits at his radio, trying to get it to work, as he hears something on the other end. Like a strange, inhuman voice. And he starts to call for help. He's doing the SOS call for help. Come in, Miskatonic. Calling Miskatonic. This is the research vessel Arkham. Do you read? We need assistance. Present position unknown. Do you hear that, sir? The voice. I, I can boost it. Just give me a minute. But the voice on the other end seems to mimic him. Almost as if it's mocking him. So they discover the object that pierced the hull of their ship. It's an eight foot tall green obelisk with ancient runes on it. They peer into the water under the ship and there's hundreds of similar monoliths sitting below them in the water. See, we see that they've set up a base camp on an ice field now. Larson and Gunnison, they spot some large penguins over in the distance. They figure they might be good for the dogs to eat. Let's go hunting. We see the penguins up close though. They don't, we do, as, as the viewer. And they all stare up at the mountain, not moving. But these are not normal penguins. Blue veins stick out of their white and translucent skin. These are albino penguins. And they're just staring at the mountain, not moving. The scientists are studying some of the monoliths that uh, struck the ship. And they study them in a large... Uh, they've set up a big tent for all of their, uh, you know, their scientific dudes. And, and they're, they're um, checking of all the artifacts and stuff. We see old film footage as Lake takes a crowbar and manages to crack one of them open and a green liquid pours out, as does the body of the creature resembling the fossil that they had. Everyone is petrified except for Lake. So they've found one of these creatures inside the monolith, covered in green goo. Danforth looks through a stack of old books and he finds an old leather-bound book with a strange monster etched on its cover. The book contains engravings of different creatures, including the one they've discovered, and a diagram of one cut in half. We now cut to one of the creatures, cut in half. And Lake, he's making notes into his voice recorder while he, Fowler, and Dyer examine the creature. When extended, their membranes resemble serrated wings, seven feet long, tip to tip, suggesting an avian predator. Their multiple ocular globes are protected by a triple membranous lid. Probably marine in origin. These five radiating lobes, they're, they're all green, do you think? <laughs> Young man, I'm not even convinced that's the head. <laughs> if it is, a cranial cavity of this size would indicate intelligence of a very high order. So this species may be unique to Antarctica. They're a self-contained environment, an isolated population, like the marsupials. A storm is kicking up. I want everyone back on board. Well, as much as I'd like to say, I'm going to leave you two gentlemen along with your new friends. The flesh is cut in every case, not torn or decomposed, you see? Exactly here. Our fossil was decapitated. 
deliberate neck wounds. Something went after the head time after time. Predator. No teeth or claw marks. I believe they're combat wounds done with a weapon. Well, whatever did this, I'm just glad it's gone. We cut back to Larson and Gunnison. They're approaching the penguins on a sled. And suddenly they stop. See, there's a giant fault-line crack in the ice in front of them. And it's a half a mile long. They get up the sled and they approach the field of penguins by foot. Because they can't, they can't sled around the corner. They've got the dogs with them. Larson manages to shoot one of the penguins and it topples over. And none of the other penguins react at all. They walk through the strange albino penguins. There's like a field of them as the fog starts creeping in around them. And Larson, he stabs the bird that he shot and he slits it down its stomach and a rancid intestines fall that clearly rotted away. The fog starts to thicken and the dogs start barking. Gunnison notices something. There's what appears to be a rudimentary fence line all around them. As if the penguins are being farmed by something. Something moves in the fog. The penguins all turn and face the two men. The dogs break away from their chains and they run off into the fog. Larson, he loads his shotgun and he chases off after the dogs into the fog. But something else is out there. We see tendrils through the air in the fog. Larson finds one of the huskies. Something is wrong. It's transforming sprouting tentacles and crab-like legs. The tendrils whip out and it grabs hold of Gunnison next to Larson. And it pulls him in and it begins to fuse with Gunnison as well. He's fusing in with the dog creature. The fog continues to roll in even thicker and thicker. Larson can see nothing but white all around him. Unhuman sounds all around him in the fog. And through the fog, as he's running away, he sees a shape in the distance, one that he recognizes. It's the Miskatonic. He runs past it, and it's partially frozen in the ice too. And there's not a soul around, no one on board. Suddenly, Gunnison stumbles close to him out of the fog, and he's completely now fused with the dog. And he reaches out for Larson, trying to fuse with him too. Larson raises the shotgun and shoots Gunnison straight in the face. But Gunnison keeps coming. Larson then turns the gun downward, shooting straight into the ice floor. He falls through into the frozen water. The tentacles of the creature attempt to go in after him, but they fizzle and burn when they touch the water. Larson swims away into the darkness. So we're back at the base camp now, and Danforth, he reads from that old book that he found with the monster etched on. And it's written that these beings, they're aliens, and they're called the Old Ones. Uh, they discuss all kinds of possibilities about these creatures warping time and space. The ice keeps growing back so quickly because weeks pass in mere minutes here. They reason that the answer for all of this, it might lay in the structures up on that mountain. Maybe there's some answers up there. We now cut to the team and they're readying to take two of the small planes they have on their ship up to the top of the mountain. But before they leave, we join Lake and Dyer in the lab as they're getting ready to go on. 
Everything we've ever learned, every piece of knowledge out the window, physics, biology, will need a new set of tools, a, a new language. What will we find up there? To think that this fossil seemed so important, it was just a first clue, a piece of rubble. Insignificant, really. Sir, we better hurry. We are scientists, Bill. This is what we live for. You couldn't miss this for the world. I... Are you glad you came along? I'm grateful, really. It's... It's all just a bit overwhelming. So am I. There's something. Go to my stateroom. Lyke presses a small key into Dyer's hand. There's a box on my desk. Look inside. Now? Now. Dyer enters Lyke's stateroom and sees a box on Lyke's crowded desk. He uses the key to open it. Inside... A folded telegram. The message from Boston. Back on the ice field, Captain Douglas is debriefing Lake near the waiting aircraft. Follow the coastline. Sumner's headed east. You, go west. We can triangulate. You have my pledge, Captain. We will return with a way out of this. Keep the coast in sight. The Mr. Tonic would do that. Look for a whaling station, a weather outpost. Captain Douglas, you've made it abundantly clear. It's your ship. I, however, am in charge of the expedition. Dyer approaches. Ah, Dyer. He throws the telegram at him. You've found out. Dyer punches him in the face. A mist of blood explodes from Lake's nose as he falls back. Dyer is upon him. Pummeling him again and again. Danforth leaps in and separates them. Jesus Christ, Bill, what are you doing? When were you planning on telling me? She was my wife, Lake. My wife! It's not your fault. Or mine. Can't you see? Anne is dead. And the baby. He knew. He's known for weeks. You're here because you knew your priorities. You just won't admit it. You chose... What was best for you? Who are you to say? Everything is abstraction. Art, poetry, love, human life. So you've led us to where? Lunacy? Death? Where are you leading these men now? Huh? Where? Knowledge. Well, you can go without me. Come along, Danforth. Let's go. So some of the research crew, including Lake and Danforth, they climb aboard the planes, and the planes take off to get answers up in the mountains of madness. And as they fly up, we see a figure now in the snow below them. It's Gunnison, in human form again, as he slowly makes his way back to the ark. But we actually start now with the two planes heading up towards the city at the top of the mountains. And it's a very rattly journey. And the men, they're all looking a bit nervous. Except for Lake. He's just keen to get up there and find out. They fly 
overhead up towards the mountains. And the Arkham, it looks like a small toy from way up there. But they also managed to spot the same fault line that Larson did last episode. Suddenly the plane devices start acting up. The needles point north and south and then back again. It starts spinning around. They dip in and out of clouds. One of the planes hits a small crop of rocks that was hidden in the fog and cloud, splitting the fuel line. It's as if the peaks of the mountains were miles away, and then all of a sudden they're flying amongst them. Jutting around and losing fuel rapidly, they break above the cloud line. Suddenly they see it, a city in the sky. And this is how it describes it in the script. A broad valley covered in eons of ice, blistering with towers, spires and rooftops. The scientists stare in awe at the alien architecture. The buildings vary in size, evidencing innumerable honeycombed compartments, wide ramps and hanging terraces. So the planes start a rocky descent over a large slab of ice between two of the largest towers. And their landing is chaotic and rough and they're crashing along the ice and the damaged plane is about to explode. And the crew start getting out and they all manage to get out except for the pilot who dies in a huge explosion. So we cut back now to the Arkham and Dyer, he's depressed over the news of his wife and his son's death. But he has no time to grieve, however, because Fowler comes running in. He needs help with the alien bodies that they found. He thinks that the green liquid that came out of... He thinks that could have been an embalming fluid of some kind. But it's starting to disappear. We now cut to the ship's infirmary, and Gunnison wakes up. So it seems Captain Douglas is standing over him, and he found him several miles away in the snow. And we also see around the infirmary there's other crew members in various states of health. Captain Douglas explains that they found him a few miles away, and he was starting to show early signs of hypothermia, so they've dragged him into the infirmary. But Captain Douglas still wonders where Larson could be. And as he leaves, as the captain leaves, we see Gunnison's face start to morph. Back to the city in the sky. Atwood is saying a prayer for the fallen pilot as all the other professors bury him. Except for Lake is not there. He's off in the distance now. He's studying the ancient walls and engravings intensely. He's a man obsessed. And as he does this, Danforth approaches him. The Denforth. Sir? T take a look. They organized their narrative in cartouches defined by these diagonal lines. See? You should go down, sir. As a measure of respect. Once you read them right to left and upwards, it's clear enough. One of our party died, sir. Thank you, Danforth. Yes, I noticed. Contrary to what you may think, what anyone may think, I did. I'll do my mourning back in Boston. We worry because our wristwatches have stopped, but these beings, they stepped across time, crossed over from other worlds. They were scientists like us, only more so. Their minds were creative and hungry. 
They landed here and built all this. Or more accurately, they, they had it built for them. Look, look. A second race. It's a, a slave race. Beasts of burden. It's, uh, it's Shogoths. If we are to believe this, the mutable creatures bred to perform any task. If they needed extra arms, eyes, fingers, mouths, they grew them. They were capable of mimicking any form of life down to the smallest detail. Now, here you can see the writing, the craftsmanship changing here, right here on this wall. These beasts rebelled against their masters. A war ensued, and these are now their pictograms, their story. A war? These Shogoths worshipped an ancient deity, a creature so malevolent that even the old ones were afraid. They reached the top of the rampart. Blake points down to a plaza below. At the center of the plaza, carved out of a natural pillar, a hundred feet high, a statue of a primordial creature, a wild creature full of tentacles, claws, and wings. And the outcome of that war? In time, we'll know. So we cut back now to the infirmary. And Gunnison is awake now. And his hand starts to spout tentacles as he hovers over the bed of the other crewmen. And he begins absorbing other, other sailors. We now see the base camp. Uh, Captain Douglas and McTeague have made contact with the team in the Sky City. The second plane pilot, he talks over the plane's radio back to them. The pilot explains that they have too many men to carry down in their one plane that they have left. And even though they're only in the air for 30 minutes, most of their fuel is gone. The ground team explains that they've been gone for 10 hours. Captain Douglas tells them to dump all of the cargo, split into two groups, and fly one back. It's luck of the draw. That's, that's what they need to do in the meantime. As they're planning, suddenly, the creature formerly known as Gunnison bursts in. It, Gunnison bursts in. But he's now grown and absorbed many more men. And he leaps straight for the captain. We cut to Dyer and Fowler. They're running further experiments on the monoliths and the old one. They notice something strange. Dyer sees a man from the sick bay. He's slowly limping down the hallway towards the lab. Dyer turns to tell Fowler, and once he turns back, no one's there. They continue their experiment, but before long, the alien's body comes alive, and the old one grabs Fowler, and he begins to instead cut him open. So he's doing like a, so he's doing like a cutting him down the stomach. Uh, they soon turn to the, they throw him away and there's there's a couple of old ones now rising out of their tombs because you remember the embalming fluid was disappearing they start to turn their attention to Dai Dai screams and he runs outside and he runs into as it's explained here in the script a snowstorm in hell
On the ice field, men are screaming and shooting and it's pandemonium. Gunnison is absorbing more things. He's becoming huge, part man, part dog, part everything. Suddenly, an old one rounds the corner and it spots the Gunnison creature. These are two old enemies coming face to face. They start attacking one another as Dyer runs away. As he's running, he bumps into someone. It's Larson. We hadn't seen him since he disappeared into the ice. He's alive, and he appears to be stuffing burlap sacks into a backpack. Dyer quickly, he helps him out, and Larson and Dyer, they escape via a dog sled. All the while, Larson is taking creatures and infected fellow crew out with multiple shots. As they leave, the Arkham is in complete chaos, and they are heading now towards the mountains. So we're back in the city now, up on the mountains. And they're deciding on who goes back in the plane. They're drawing straws. Atwood, uh, Professor Daniels, and Danforth, they all get a good straw, as does one of the cameramen. They're all going to head back. Lake also draws a lucky straw. But he ultimately decides he's going to give it to the second cameraman so they can both go back. The two cameramen are brothers. So he's like, you and your brother, you both go, but you have my straw. Before they leave, uh, Lake grabs an old, the old leather book from Danforth. And he asks Danforth to tell Dyer that he is truly sorry. The plane sets off again. And once they leave, Lake gathers the remaining men and some climbing equipment. And they head into the city. So we cut back to Larson and Dyer. They're racing over the ice fields towards the mountains. Larson steers them straight into an ice cave. Dyer, now completely shell-shocked, he gets off the sled inside a massive cave. Where the hell are we? Somewhere safe. I found it by accident. Larson points to a hole blasted in the ice floor. We're about four miles from the ship. I've been gathering provisions all day. Where have you been? We should go back. Help them. We can't help them. We'll help ourselves. Those things back there. They've probably taken the whole crew by now. Not everyone. No, no, no. No, don't say Look, you saw enough. So shut up and meditate on it. Or make notes. Or whatever your professor brain wants to do. Me? I'm tired. Grab a fur and lie back. If we talk. We'll do it in the morning. Something rustles deep in the cave. Larson. Dyer grabs a gun, moves towards the sound. Larson. He snaps on a torch, an albino penguin. Larson grabs him. Shut up! Shut up! Are you crazy? It's just a fucking penguin! The dumbest bird on the planet! Half a dozen albino penguins waddle out from the tunnel. They have no eyes. So? What's the difference? Caves, tunnels, they're pitch black. Caves? There's, there's more? Far as I can tell, the mountain's full of them. You okay? That thing, it... It, it, it scared you? A little bit. There. Now for the last time. Egghead, shut up and go to sleep.
So Dyer, he continues the dream that he had last episode with the dark man, remember him? He's on the ice and he's walking towards him again and suddenly he wakes up. So this is this ongoing motif of the dark man. The next morning, Dyer helps Larson with the ammunition, which seems to be replacing some of the ammunition with salt. Larson explains that the creatures seem to react badly to salt water. And when he remember he's grabbing the burlap sacks, he was grabbing sacks of salt. Larson, he shows Dyer around the cave a little, explaining the vast networks of passageways in there. From inside the cave, they hear a sputtering engine. The plane is returning. The plane though, it can't land. It seems the rest of the people from the Arkham, they've now been completely taken over and they're all standing in the middle of the ice field like statues, similar to the penguins. And they're all staring at the plane as it comes down. They manage to land roughly on a spare section of ice that they man like the people aren't quite on. But suddenly, they're set upon by everyone and all manner of creatures at the place too. So the, the pilot manages to get out of the plane, but he realizes, oh, the crew. He realizes what they've become. They're all tendrils coming out and claws and all kinds. Inside the plane, however, a few of the surviving professors like Atwood, Danforth, and Daniels, they hear a noise. Suddenly, Gunnison opens the door. Oh, thank God, they think. But suddenly, in the cockpit window, another Gunnison. And another all around them. As the creatures enter, Daniels manages to swipe at one with a knife and it, it cuts him down the little, the little arm, but some goo falls onto it. The creatures are starting to morph as they enter the plane. Atwood, Danforth and Daniels manage to escape out of the emergency hatch at the back of the plane and they start running across the ice field. We also see Pip, one of the young cameramen, and he sees his brother is trapped inside the plane and he heads back in to help him. And as soon as Pip arrives, we realize it's too late. His brother spouts wild tentacles and grabs him. Pip is no longer with him. Atwood, Danforth and Daniels are fleeing their full fucking tilt across the ice field as the creatures ravish the plane behind them. And as they do, suddenly they come across two familiar friends. They spot Dyer and Larson, each brandishing twin shotguns. Larson levels his weapon. No, no, please don't, no! It's us. Don't be, don't be afraid. Wait, wait. We know them. Don't be so sure. You stay right there. All of you, eat that. What the hell is this? Salt? Go on, chow down. You don't understand. The, the plane, these things, there are things- Shut up and eat some salt, or you'll get some from here. You're all too smart for me. Now, eat a good handful, and then we'll see who's who. <coughs> Bastards. Are you satisfied now, huh? Are you? You're inhuman. Inhuman? You're funny. You too, Dr. Daniels. Daniel suddenly squeals and his whole torso explodes into a million tentacles wheeling around. Larson levels his gun and shoots him. But, but, but that thing, it only touched him for a second. Now, they'll come after us. Let's move. So we're now back with Lake and the remaining professors in the Sky City. They head to a huge 
round stone chamber that is referred to as the biology room. And mammoth sculptures of unknown gods lay toppled. Lake is astounded by the technology in this room, far too advanced for what should be here. We see massive structures of animal bones petrified together from dinosaurs to birds to mammals to crustaceans. Lake states that this is all life on earth in one structure. And the old ones created them all. And they are gods. In amongst all the fossils, we even spot a human skeleton. They enter another room with different types of machinery, huge energy sources, and more technology that is beyond their years. We see a pulsing form of energy. It's like a, like a big light. One of the professors, a guy named Professor Ropes, he becomes fascinated with this glowing woman. And he puts his hand up against it. Oh, big mistake. Whoop! He ages in mere seconds. He gets the life force sucked out of him by the time distortion. And he falls to the ground a husk. And his clothes are old rags. See, it turns out this is where the time dilation has been coming from. There seems to be something in the middle of the mountain that is warping time all around it. So Lake, he tries to work another machine that he, he sees there. And as he does, he receives a flash of information, a message being put into his brain. It's all about history of the old ones. We see the creation of life, the prime of this city, the war of the Shogoths and the old ones. And in his vision, we see something rising out of the water, something massive. Lake is overcome by his knowledge. He knows it all now and it's not good. He tries desperately to warn the rest of the group, but he isn't making any sense. He explains the Shogoths, they want to bring about their god. Something worse than the old ones. Cthulhu. Suddenly, a Shogoth kills one of the remaining professors, comes out of the dark. More of them appear out of nowhere, and they snatch up two more professors. Like, he runs and he hides in a nearby catacomb, thinking he's safe. There's a noise above him. He looks up. Oh no. A Shogoth leaps down. We cut away. We cut to Dyer, Larson, Danforth, and Atwood. They're pretty much all that's left at this point. Everyone else has been taken over. And they're looking down at the Arkham from a distant ice cliff. And the creatures are burning fuel. And the ship appears to be on fire from the outside. And it's melting the ice. The Arkham can finally be free and go home. But this means if these creatures get out of here, they can take over the whole world. Because they're essentially trapped there. They're surrounded 360 degrees by salt water. But if they can get on a ship, game over. They decide they have to stop this. They plan to use some dynamite that Larson has spotted on the Miskatonic when he, when he went past it before to fracture the huge ice sheet fault line. They go to the Miskatonic and they start looking around the abandoned ship. They manage to find some dynamite. However, when they pick some up, it crumbles in their hand. It's too old. The time dilation has got to it. However, they do find some that is still good. Around one third of the dynamite is still usable. They're removing the dynamite and Atwood, he excuses himself. He wanders the ship until he comes across a small chapel on the, sh on the ship. He enters and he picks up a small Bible. He looks up to see something in the reflection of the glass. He turns around to see a familiar face. Lake? 
How did you... <laughs> shepherd I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green So we cut now to the rest of the group and they're scouring the Miskatonic looking for Atwood when suddenly he reappears. But something's a bit off. Larson and Atwood, uh, they're now roped together and they're down in the crack of the ice and they're setting dynamite into the thing. Dyer and Danforth, they're at the top. And Dyer hears a chanting sound. He takes a shotgun to investigate. The men from the Arkham, the creatures that they've become, they're now fused and transformed into one giant organism, and they are chanting to Cthulhu. Something is starting to happen, and the ground is beginning to shake. Time is running out. Dyer rushes back to tell the group to blow it now. Danforth tells him that Larson and Atwood are still down there. It doesn't matter, he says. Larson looks over to see that Atwood is cutting the wires of all the dynamite. He's, he's sabotaging their mission. Larson laughs. You, whatever the fuck you are, you're good. You got me. But you really don't know shit about explosives, do you? He levels his gun and he turns it to the explosives and he fires. 
a blinding set of explosions trigger across the ice. The large sheet starts to crack as part of it floats and tears away, bowing and bobbing in the ocean. The creatures of the Arkham all suddenly stop working and they run towards the ice crack. Dyer and Danforth run towards the now abandoned Arkham and several creatures scream as they do. Large amounts of salt water are now flooding onto the ice sheets as they're sinking. They notice that the ship is starting to drift from the ice field. It's free. They start climbing up to the ship. You know, they've got the ropes tying it down. And as they do, they're followed by two creatures that used to be the Huskies. They make their way on board and Dyer starts cutting the tethers with a fire axe. Two of the creatures fall into the ocean. Danforth and Dyer looks back at the ice sheet they've just freed themselves from. As from, this is what it says in the script, up from behind the mountain ranges comes a heaving titan, Cthulhu. Dyer and Danforth notice that some of the Shogoths have managed to make it onto the ship. They rush inside and down the corridors as creatures snap and claw at them. They find a storage room that's been flooded with seawater. They jump in, it's waist deep now. Suddenly, Cthulhu swoops down and grabs the ship. It picks it up into the air and starts squeezing it. As it squeezes, many of the Shogoths get crushed into the walls of the ship. The giant beast throws the ship through the air. Danforth and Dyer are thrown around wildly as it lands back in the ocean, miles from where they just were. Seawater floods the entire ship and manages to get into every room. Dyer pushes the storage room door shut and he locks it. So uh, we're back now where, where everything kind of started in the storage room. Danforth, he looks out of a small porthole and he sees the giant silhouette of Cthulhu against the sky. But Danforth has changed. He's seen something. He's shaken by something. Dyer wonders what he could have seen. Suddenly, we see shapes start to emerge in the corner of the room and out of the shadow comes Lake. He says that Danforth... He has now seen the future out there. He has seen the end of things. He has seen the Dark Man. And he knows that Dyer has seen it too. Danforth reaches for his shotgun as a tentacle shoots from Lake to stop him, grabbing his arm. Dyer swings the axe and chops the tentacle from Lake's body, freeing his friend. And Danforth raises the gun and he shoots Lake. Lake falls into the water. But it's too late. See, Lake's Shogoth tissues are wrapping around Danforth's oh, arm and it's starting to bubble. He looks teary-eyed at his oldest oh, friend God. and he begs Dyer to shoot him. Dyer! Shoot me! Shoot me now! He can't let these creatures escape. Dyer grabs the gun as Danforth drops to his knees. Do it! Bill, I can feel it taking over. Please, let me choose. Oh, I die. Do it! And teary-eyed, Dyer fires. He sits there in silence for a few minutes. When suddenly, voices out in the corridor. The door bursts open and we see the crewmen who first discovered Dyer in 1939. So yes, he's now, we're back to the very start of the film where he's been discovered by the crewmen. We now return to Dyer, who is in a hospital prison cell. And he is finishing his story to Captain Starkweather. I hoped to die. I really did. But I know now why I've been spared. 
to deliver this warning. In my mind, to me, this happened yesterday. Just yesterday. Do you understand? I understand perfectly, Mr. Dyer. Orderlies. You killed the men aboard the Arkham. You shot Dan forth in cold blood. You, sir, sabotaged the expedition. Why or, or how? That does not concern me. No, I must go. I sail at midnight. Starkweather exits through the door. No! No! You're wrong! He walks down the corridor as the orderlies shut the door on Dyer, who screams through his barred window. You can't go! It's still there! Waiting! For us! Starkweather exits the hospital as his warrant officer hurries up the path behind him. Good evening, sir. Let's get going, Wilson. I've wasted more than enough time here. We cut now to Starkweather aboard the HMS Moonstone that we were introduced to in the last episode as it sails through an arctic fog. A communication comes through from Hobart. It informs him that... Ah, message from Hobart, sir. It seems that Mr. William Dyer, he, uh, he died in his cell last night. Hanged himself, sir. On the arctic landscape now, Starkweather and a few men come across a tattered old tent and a few upturned sleds. Starkweather enters the tent. Nothing in here but snow and blood and some stained autopsy tables. He exits the tent, but all these men have now vanished. He is alone, except for a single figure walking towards him in the distance. The camera pulls out as we see the two figures alone in the whiteness, dwarfed by the mountains of madness, and text appears on screen. At the end of days will come a man that walks like a man, looks like a man, but is not a man. Revelations 5.19 This has been a presentation of At the Mountains of Madness. Written by Guillermo del Toro and Matthew Robbins. Adapted by Cancelled Movie Report. Starring Heaven Ferrante as William Dyer, Michael Hahn as Professor Lake and Larson, Jay Zeta as Dan Forth, Justice Hall as Captain Douglas, Paul Kaczynski as McTeague, and Michael Campbell as Starkweather. Sound effects were sourced from Envato Elements, and the music is from Triune Scores. This project was made possible by the patrons of Cancelled Movie Report. Thank you for listening.